Take your Bibles this morning. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25 this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 25, that's where we're at as we walk through our study of the life of David. And uh, last week we started, if you remember, recognizing just the reality that uh, we experience and walk into and through seasons of life sometimes that are difficult. Sometimes those storms just come rolling in. It's not like a self-inflicted season of suffering. Uh, but there are sometimes, as we'll look at this week and we're reminded of this week in this part of David's story, that sometimes we experience hard seasons that are self-inflicted, that are a result of us making some bad, foolish decisions detached from God's Word. And that, those, that can happen real quick, can it? It's like one day, man, we can feel like we are a Hebrews chapter 11 runner in the race of faith, the Christian faith that God's called us to, and things seem to be going well, we seem to be making good decisions. Uh, by the grace of God, and then the very next day, we could find ourselves just making completely foolish decisions and bad decisions. Anybody ever there? Sometimes running the race, looking a lot like this guy right here. Take a look at this race. Second guy from the left. days in your Christian life where it feels like you're running the race more like that guy right there and uh, we can experience those days and it's it, it really is interesting one day you're running it feels like you're running gracefully for the Lord and then the next day you realize and you remember that we are capable of making decisions and foolish decisions that not only wreck our own lives but as you saw in that clip there it can start wrecking the lives of people around us as we're running our race and so as we continue to track with David's story this morning. Uh, we're reminded last week we left David in that cave running the race faithfully. He was making good decisions. He was making wise decisions. He was stepping in and giving his, boldly giving his men a speech that they needed to hear about trusting God and leaving things into God's hands, not taking vengeance into their own hands by killing Saul. But here in the very next chapter, the very next chapter, the very next scene, we see David's faith falter. And now he's the one, as he stepped in the gap and helped his men think right, last chapter, he's going to need somebody to come and step into his path and try to help him to think right. He's going to need someone to step in and be a godly friend to him and share some wisdom with him that will help restrain him and divert him from making a really foolish decision to go down a path that could bring destruction on his life and other people's life lives as well. And so, as, uh, with all those things in mind, let's stand with our Bibles open. We're going to begin to read in verse 23 this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 25. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. When she's talking about my Lord there, lowercase l, she's talking to David. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal. For as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, David, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek you do evil to my Lord. Uh, as, as Nabal. 
Verse 27. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord, she brings him a little gift basket, be given to you, the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. Now look down at verse 32. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. Would you have a seat as I pray? God, I pray that you would help us this morning. We need your help to understand your word. And so often your word isn't that difficult to understand. Sometimes it's very easy to understand. It's very direct. But so often, even when it's easy to understand and direct, it's hard to live out. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would not only help us to understand and to believe, but you'd help us to apply your word with some really important lessons we learned from this text this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start at the beginning of this text, and we're going to walk through the narrative. We're going to walk through the story, and it'll catch us up to speed to where we, uh, from where we just left off a moment ago. And so let's start in verse 1. It says, Now Samuel died. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him in the house of Ramah. All right, so this is the death of a spiritual giant in the nation of Israel. It's, a de- it's the death of a spiritual giant in David's life personally. Samuel, the prophet Samuel, has been a source of encouragement, has been a source of wisdom in David's life. And now he's gone. And I want you to keep that in mind as we see David begin to make some decisions here with Saul being out of the picture. He's going to make his own decisions here with a man who's been a source of wisdom and a godly friend to him gone. So look at verse 1. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in the Moan whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Carmel. So you may think he's rich. It just says he has a lot of goats. Well, in those days, if you had a lot of land, if you had a lot of animals, a lot of livestock, you had a lot of money. You had a lot of wealth, right? The equivalent today would be the guy who owns several vacation homes around the world, has a bunch of ranches, and has a bunch of garages full of high-end luxury cars, all right? That's who Nabal is. Verse 3 says, Now the name of this man was Nabal. And the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. So basically, this is the way that this man that we're introduced to right here in chapter 25 of 1 Samuel, this man Nabal is describing him as this rich, arrogant, evil, wicked jerk. All right, that's who he is. He's let his wealth, he's let his power go to his head. And that's who he is. But his wife, you know, in contrast, is very different. She's described as being very discerning, very beautiful. In other words, she's beautiful on the inside and out. And here's what's happening. Let me summarize the following verses, okay? David is out in the wilderness. This is a time when Saul is pursuing him, trying to kill him. David and 600 of his men are out there in the wilderness, and they've been staying near the land of this guy named Nabal. And throughout the year, they have used their might not to take advantage of Nabal, not to, and they had a lot of might, not to steal from Nabal, not to mistreat his workers. On the contrary, David and his men have been protecting Nabal's land. Have been, they've set up a defense system. They've guarded the land from, and guarded the shepherds on the land from, you know, Philistine bandits and robbers that could have come in, robbers and could have destroyed them. And so they, uh, that's, that's who they've been, all right? And so they've set themselves up there in verse 16. It says, they have been a wall for Nabal 
both day and night. It's a very generous thing that they've done. Well, in those days, it was very customary one time a year at sheep shearing, if you were somebody like Nabal, to send a thank you gift out to anybody who helped contribute to the success of that last year. So it was very customary. In fact, it was so customary that David, not really thinking, just sent some men, sent some men hearing that it was sheep shearing time to pick up his thank you note in his thank you gift. All right. Well, not only does Nabal not give him a thank you gift, he also insults David. Look at verse 10. He says this about David to David's men. He says, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are manservants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Now, there isn't a single person in the nation of Israel who does not know who David is at this time. This is just Nabal being Nabal. He's being incredibly rude. He's being intentionally demeaning. He calls David a runaway slave. Now, how do you think David received that? How do you think David received that? Who spent most of his life feeling overlooked. Remember, even when Samuel was going to pick a king from Jesse's son, he wasn't even invited to that party. He was left out in the field. Overlooked, forgotten. You think the enemy maybe is going to play on his insecurities right here? Absolutely. David's men come back and report what happened, that not only did he give it, he didn't give us a gift, which is customary, which is rude, he said some really insulting things about you, David, and David loses it. Like, majorly loses it. Look at verse 13. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. Yeah. And every man strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. Now look down at verse 21, so you can understand David's intentions, what he intends to do. David said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he's returned to me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. In other words, put your swords on, guys. We're going to completely wipe out this household. We're going to go slaughter everybody connected to this guy named Nabal. And you've got to read this and ask, what happened to the David in the cave? What happened to the David in the last chapter, in chapter 24? The man that we saw bravely lead his men last week to trust God, to not take things into their own hands, to have a, a cool, calm head in the middle of emotionally charged situations like this. And now he's leading his men to strap on their swords and to go slaughter a crooked and scroogey man named Nabal's entire household because he didn't give him a tip. What's happened? Well, what's happened is after passing a major test in the last chapter, David is about to dramatically fail a little quiz that can dramatically destroy his life. And often, the enemy will work that way. After seasons of victory, you'll find the enemy coming in in vulnerable moments of us with our guard down attacking us. And you see that happening in David's life, certainly right here. Well... Nabal's men, they catch wind that David's got plans to come and mow them down. And so Nabal's men go to the discerning person of the household, which isn't Nabal. You can't talk any sense into him. They go to his wife, Abigail. And they go to Abigail and they say, hey, listen, Nabal says I'm really mean to David. David's coming to kill all of us. We've got to do something. And so in verses 18 through 22, it tells us that she put together this big gift basket of all kinds of goodies, whatever you put in the gift basket. I'm not sure what you put in the gift basket, ladies, but whatever you put in the gift basket, fruit, granola bars, I'm not sure what she put in that gift basket, but she's trying to make an impression. She puts together a big gift basket, and she heads out to meet David. And look again at verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down off the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. 
Nabal is his name, and folly, foolishness, stupidity is with him. All right, so here you find out what Nabal's name means. It literally means fool, which we believe, scholars believe that's a nickname that he picked up along the way. Like, I've heard some weird names that parents have given their kids. All right, I was going to give you some examples, but you've heard those before, right? They're out there. Some people can give their kids some strange names, but no parent is going to give their baby the name fool. What should we, what should we name our baby? Fool. Right, so we know that this is a nickname that he's picked up along the way. And also keep in mind, this is a section of Scripture for the wives in the room today that is descriptive, not prescriptive. All right? This isn't an example of how you should talk to your husband or about your husband. Right? Just keep in mind, she's got four, a cavalry of 400 men coming to slaughter the entire household. She's doing whatever it takes. You've got to give her a little slack right here. All right? But the words that she says next right here are the words that David really needs to hear. Beginning in verse 29. Notice what she does here. Notice where she draws David's attention. She says in verse 29, If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord, David shall be bound in the bundle of the care of the Lord your God. In the lives of your enemies, he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. Does that remind you of something? A story? When the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed your prince, you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember, you're served. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Verse 33, Blessed be your discretion or your wisdom and blessed be to me who have kept me from this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hands. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there would have not been left to Nabal so much as one male. I'd have wiped them all out. So think about what's happening here. David is on his way to make an impulsive, rash, foolish, bad decision that he's going to regret until a lady named Abigail intervenes. Until a lady named Abigail, who we haven't seen up to this point, and you won't see her name, Abigail, mentioned again for the rest of Scripture. You see her stepping in as this godly, wise counsel that David needs in his life. And God works through that to provide restraining grace in the life of David. Which brings us to the first lesson that we learned from this story this morning. In this passage, number one, we learn about the guiding light of godly counsel. The guiding light of godly counsel. So in this moment, what did David desperately need to do? What he needed to do is turn his attention away from the vengeful desires of his flesh and turn his attention in his heart to God, to God's promises, to the faithfulness of God, to truths about who God is. But the problem is, is that his spiritual eyes in this moment can't focus in on those things and can't focus in on who God is and on the promises that God's made in his life because he's a little distracted by a hot fire ablaze in his heart of anger. A fury. And so what he needs, he can't see those things on his own. And so what he needs is he needs a friend to come along and to turn his attention away from those vengeful desires and to the person and the character of God. This is, this is a friend. This is Abigail stepping into the path of David who's on a mission about to make a foolish decision with his eyes set on the wrong things, turning his attention away from those things to God and basically saying, wait, hold on. David, wait! Wait! Think about what you're about to do. 
In light of who God is, David, in light of who He's called you to be, in light of His perfect and proven track record of faithfulness in your life, in light of His perfect track record of caring for you in your life, in light of how He's always fought for you, in light of how He slayed a giant with a sling. David, think about what you're about to do. Look at yourself. Look at God. God's the one who fights your battles. The battle is the Lord's. He's always uh, already proven that to you. And you've already learned that from experience. You can put it in God's hands. What are you doing running across the wilderness to take out this little guy named Nabal? Don't do this. You are going to deeply regret this. This is really good counsel. David, you're going to have a story to tell when you get to the throne. You don't want this to be a chapter of that story that you're going to tell about how God you got you there. And though most of us have not been tempted to do something exactly like David is tempted to do right here, have we not all had the temptation to have lapses in judgment? All of us have. You know, just like David, in those moments and in our life, we need people to step into our lives to help us steer away from making those bad decisions. And to get off of a path of making some really regrettable, rash decisions that we'll have to live with the rest of our life. David needed people in his life, and we've seen that all up to this point, right? Samuel steps into his life. God sends him Samuel because God sends us people who can help us. He sends Samuel into his life to give him wisdom. God sends him a friend in a very dark season that God knows he's about to walk through in Jonathan. Later on, God's going to send a man named Nathan that David's going to... He's going to need some counsel. He's going to need somebody in his life telling him to repent of sin and to get right with God. And that's Nathan. And right here, he needs Abigail. And God sends Abigail into David's life to restrain him from committing sin. And just like God sent David into the lives of those men last week into that cave, here God is sending David a friend to help him. And David, we see right here, is recognizing that this is a gift from God. David's recognizing that he needs people in his life to speak wisdom into his life. He views Abigail by the end of this story as a gift of God's grace, as an agent of God in his life to help him live righteously more for the glory of God. We see that in his response there in verse 32. He acknowledges, oh, God sent you to me. God sent you to warn me. God sent you to keep me from danger. And you know what? God calls us to step into other people's lives and sends us into other people's life to help them. And He calls us to receive Abigail's into our life and to see them as agents of God, God's grace, to help us to make better decisions that align with His will. All of us have the temptation to make really bad, faulty decisions, to have really faulty judgment in our life. We can get to thinking wrong. If David the giant killer can think wrong, we can think wrong. And in the same way God has given David someone to help him, God has also given us that gift as well. You say, well, where is that? It's, It's right here. The people sitting around you right now. It's found in the body of Christ. I wonder how many bad decisions in the history of the church have been made by people, believers, followers of Christ, bypassing the precious gift that God's given us to make wiser decisions. His church, the body of Christ. How many bad decisions have been made by sometimes well-meaning Christians who pray about guidance from God about a decision and then just kind of launch out and kind of make their own decisions on their own. We cannot afford to forget That when we pray for guidance, and we should. That when we pray for wisdom, and we should. 
that when we pray those prayers, God often answers those prayers for guidance and for wisdom in our life through the counsel of His Word and through the counsel of a multitude of godly counselors around us that He's provided for us in His church. Proverbs 11.14 says, Where there is no guidance, a people falls, but in abundance... In an abundance of counselors, there is safety. I wonder how many in a room like this, with this many people gathered here on a Sunday morning, maybe you're in the middle, you're like at a crossroads. You're making decisions right now in your life. And I wonder how many of you are about to make a bad decision, a rash decision. Maybe it's concerning family. Maybe it's concerning your marriage. Maybe it's concerning finances. Maybe it's concerning career or a job, a relationship. And maybe you're swallowed up with the same emotion that David is swallowed up with right here that's making him make some bad decisions. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's an emotion of bitterness. Maybe it's greed or jealousy that's consumed you. Or maybe it's just that you're so overwhelmed with the new potential job opportunity or the new potential relationship or the new potential, whatever it is, that you're about to march out according to your own plans. Listen, in those moments, those emotionally charged moments, we desperately need some godly friends with cool heads to give us wise counsel to help us avoid making massively foolish decisions at times. And Abigail is a great example of what that kind of friend looks like. Abigail is a great example of what it looks like to be that kind of friend that's that kind of godly counselor in somebody's life. And this is a very emotionally charged moment, isn't it? Can you imagine the intensity of this moment as she runs out and intersects her path with David? It's an emotionally charged moment. It's intimidating. And yet, what does she do? She speaks clearly. She speaks calmly. She approaches David humbly, kindly, generously, hospitably with her gift basket. She bows down. She's showing honor. She's showing respect. Listen, but she does not back off with the way she's cutting the word straight in what she's saying. She speaks boldly. She doesn't sugarcoat the truth. And most importantly, and this is the most important thing you need to be listening for in the council of friends around you, she roots everything she says and every bit of counsel she gives him in God's Word. God's Word, God's promises, God's work, God's will, God's ways. And every bit of her counsel is rooted in who God is according to Scripture, and the promises that He made. And she's urging David, this is what a good counselor in our life does, urging David to live her his life in light of those truths. And the prayer after, you know, when we study a passage like this is, God, may you send me friends like Abigail. May you send some friends into my life like Abigail, some Abigails into my life, and make me a friend like Abigail in the lives of people around me. We need to humbly receive those types of people into our life and listen to them and see them as a gift of God's grace in our life that they are. And we also need to seek to be those kind of friends in the lives of people around us. So that's a big point this morning. But I don't want to move on without pointing something else about her story that I don't think is the main authorial intent of the text. I don't think it's the main point. But I think it's something that can be extremely encouraging to some of you who are here this morning. As you think about, think about who she is. Think about who she's living with. Think about who her husband is. And think about how faithful she is in her walk with God in spite of those things. Think about her example of faithfulness and godliness in spite of the fact that she's got a husband who doesn't give a rip about anything spiritually. Who gives her no spiritual encouragement. And just talking real with you this morning, some of you are here and you're in a marriage where there is a lack of male spiritual leadership in your home and in your relationship. For whatever reason. 
It may be because maybe you got married young. Maybe you have a husband who... He, there was a time when he was thinking right, but he's not thinking right now. Or maybe he professed Christ at one time, but he's changed in a lot of ways now. And you feel discouraged at times. You don't, you don't even know what to do. And it's a very difficult place to be. Marriage is already hard work, right? Can I get an amen from all the married folks in the room? Okay. Whoever didn't say amen right there, a lot. Marriage is hard work. It's hard work because you've got two individual sinners coming together seeking to be one. Is that not right, man? Relationship is hard work. And it's hard to understand each other, you know, for, for a man to understand the way that a woman's thinking and a woman to understand the way that a man's thinking sometimes. And a lot of times when we talk about that, the joke, we're, we're, when we tell jokes about that, we're usually harder on the women, like when we joke about things like that. Like I heard uh, that the difference between husbands and wives or men and women can be illustrated well by looking at the differences between cats and dogs. Your husband is more like a dog, right? How do we relate to dogs? Right? You feed him, you show him some attention, you show him some affection, and what do you have? You have a happy dog. Men are like that, right? Women are like cats. How do you make a cat happy? Nobody knows. <laughs> and whatever works the first time doesn't work the second time, works the second time doesn't work the third time. Right? We can... <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on before too many guys say amen and get themselves into trouble. But we can't, isn't it true? Sometimes we can give the ladies a hard time about things like that. But in all seriousness, there are some of you ladies here this morning who are genuinely having a painfully difficult time understanding, spiritually speaking, why your spouse is the way they are. And it feels like you are doing all the heavy lifting spiritually in your home. It feels exhausting. It can feel confusing. It can feel lonely. And quite frankly, you've got moments where you feel like giving up. You feel like giving up because you wonder, am I even making an impact for the kingdom of God in my home and in my marriage? And I simply want to encourage you by turning your attention to this faithful example of Abigail in Scripture. Don't give up. Don't give up. The answer isn't to stop being faithful. The answer isn't a divorce. The answer isn't a new husband. This is the marriage that God's given you. This is the season that He's given you to walk through faithfully even though it's hard. Stay faithful. Don't give up. Now, if there's ever difficulty, hear me clearly, in a marriage because of abuse, that's a whole different conversation we need to have. But if what we're talking about is the absence of godly spiritual male leadership in your home, don't bail. Forgive my cheesy poetry this morning, but don't bail. Be an Abigail, all right? Be easy to remember. Allow her example of faithfulness to encourage you. Know that even when... It gets difficult, even when it's difficult to see that God's making an impact through your faithfulness. Have confidence that He is. Have confidence that even through this season of trial, that God is working. That God is shaping you through it. It's a great work that He's doing through this trial. He uses all trials to do that in our life. To sanctify us. And though it's difficult to see, continue to be faithful. Continue to endure. Double down on being faithful when you feel like giving up. Don't bail. Be like Abigail. Because God is at work. He's shaping you and conforming you more into the image of Christ. And then also never lose hope that God can use your example to lead your husband to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about that. An unbelieving man who he says is woken up because of the consistency and the wisdom and the patience and the patient faithfulness in the beauty of his wife. So you and your home, let him continue to watch you flesh out Christ-likeness. Not perfectly, but progressively, faithfully, endure. 
And let your commitment to Jesus in the flesh, the way you react to hardship, the way you extend grace to people who don't deserve it, the way you continue to love and pour yourself out for the glory of God in your home, over your kids and your husband, let that make an impact on him. And Paul says that so often that kind of godly wife can impact the heart of a stubborn husband to be more open to the gospel. Don't bail. And husbands, if your life looks more like Nabal, here's my message to Jesus. Wake up. Wake up. You do not want to be like Nabal. It doesn't end well for him. We're going to see in just a few moments. First, come to Christ. And if you're a believer, here's a lesson for you. Step up. Stop making your wife carry the weight spiritually in your home and in your relationship. Listen, wherever we learn that that's some kind of form of manhood in our culture, or even in the culture of a church that maybe we grew up in, or some kind of impression we got along the way, that some version of manhood is me keeping a distance from spiritual intimacy with Christ, keeping a distance from me picking up the reins as a spiritual leader of my household, wherever I got that impression, it's wrong. That is not being a man. Being a man is loving Jesus. Being a man is loving His Word. Being a man is seeking to be the faithful Christ-like servant leader He's called you to be for the glory of God and for the good of your home. And if you got a husband who's seeking to lead, if you even see an ounce of a desire in him, seeking to be a spiritual leader in your home, don't nitpick him to death. Encourage him. Thank him for making those steps. Seek to be faithful, to be a leader. Encourage him. Pray for him. Thank God for him. And also pray for your sisters in Christ who may even are in your church family who, like Abigail, don't have that support. We'll see how the story ends. Look at verse 36. And Abigail came home to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like a feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. It's a really tragic ending. It's a really sad, awful, tragic thing for Nabal to experience. It seems scholars think he either had a stroke or had a heart attack. Either way, God struck him down. But the author ultimately is trying to show us this, that just as Abigail said, the battle is the Lord's. God is going to fight David's battles for him. All David's got to keep doing is leaving things in the hands of God. Leaving vengeance in the hands of God. Leaving the right to get back and to hit back in the hands of God. He doesn't need to take the path of vengeance on fools like Nabal's. That's the point. Which brings us to the second lesson. And you get two express points to end this message this morning. All right, hang on tight. Second big lesson in this story, we not only learn about the guiding light of godly counsel, we learn about the folly of getting even. We learn that vengeance, we learn that revenge, we learn that hitting back, getting back, it may feel right in the moment, but it's always a foolish path to take. But like David, we are going to be tempted to take that path. It's human nature. It's in our sinful nature. You know David, he was ready. They had their swords strapped on. They were about ready to serve out some justice. He took vengeance into his own hands and it felt right. Him fantasizing about slaughtering them after he insulted him. In his mind, man, it felt right. 
And it's our natural knee-jerk reaction to want to hit back, is it not? It feels good in our minds. It feels right to think about giving somebody a little taste of their own medicine. We love movies like that. People will pile into movies. They watch movies like that. We love a movie where the hero who is wronged and now is being a hero who is wrong, who somebody's done something evil to him or his family, is now hunting down that dude who did something wrong and is about to go Chuck Norris Walker, Texas Ranger on him. They're about to get a roundhouse kick to the face with a boot, serve out some justice we love movies like that right it's good to see in our minds violence met with some violence some injustice met with justice nobody's in front of their tv when chuck norris is laying out some justice going wait a second wait a second why did you kick him right i know that he killed those people and he's a horrible person but that was kind of mean to kick him in the face like that chuck why did you do that no we leave that tv set going yes We leave the movie theater after a movie about revenge where the hero wins going, yes, this is the way it should be. But here's the problem. The world and even believers, we will watch those things and we will leave those TV sets and we will leave the theater and we'll walk out into our lives and take that same mindset into our relationships where we carry around a real desire to get even with people who have hurt us. To strike back at people who have betrayed us. To get back at people who have done us wrong. Because in our heart, we believe that in order to restore righteousness, we need to take matters into our own hands. We need to exact vengeance. And we do it on all kinds of different levels. Maybe it is fantasizing about something violent happening to somebody who is violent towards you. But it can take subtle forms. It can be, hey, that friend not paying attention to me, so now I'm going to distance myself from them. Your boss too harsh in your opinion with the way that he gave you direction or she gave you direction so now I'm going to pay back by you know shelling out a little lazy work or running their name through the mud maybe your spouse woke up having a bad day woke up on the wrong side of the bed so you're going to give them the cold shoulder shoulder shoot some shots back at them maybe it's the family member who crossed you could be months ago years ago but they crossed you and so with a bitter heart man you make them pay with coldness and by withholding forgiveness and being short with them, we respond in a variety of ways. But in all those situations, we're trying to fix the situation by the power of our own flesh because we think if that person can get a little taste of their own medicine, maybe they'll understand how badly they hurt me and they'll change their ways. That's at the heart of why we hold on to revenge and the right to get back. And it can feel so right. But how many of us have lived long enough to discover that it never works that way? And actually, it's not just that it never works that way. You never change someone through revenge and through hitting back. It's actually not who we're called to be. The Word of God actually teaches us that the life of the disciple, that for the life of the disciple, revenge and vengeance and getting back is never an option. You know what that means this morning? That if there's bitterness and anger and an an urge in your heart to hit back at a ball in your life this morning, that urge does not belong. Amen. Hey, listen to me. Listen to me. Can I just counsel with you for a moment? I'm not saying that those feelings that you have are not in a way legitimate and that you haven't experienced some real deep wounds of hurt. Maybe you were abused You were unable to defend yourself. And I want you to know, I'm so sorry that happened to you. What a terrible, awful thing to experience. It should have never happened. 
Some of you have had to walk through a divorce that has left your heart shattered and you deal with the hurt and the bitterness in your heart connected to that. Some of you have had terrible things said about you by people who you thought loved you and were supposed to care for you, but said things sharp and hateful and insulting and uncaring. And it's something that could have happened 20 years ago, but it might as well would have happened 20 minutes ago because it's still with you and the hurt is still with you and you carry it. It's right there. And when we hurt, our natural reaction is to do what Chuck Norris heroes do. It's to get even. That's why we love those stories. To fantasize about that person getting theirs. And yet, here's the problem. This is what you've got to wrestle with. This is the problem. If you're a follower of Christ, when we look at the hero of this story, he not only tells us, but gives us an example of how we are to, we're to react in a different way. He's calling us not to avenge ourselves, but to leave things in His hands. To leave things in the hands of God. To trust God as the great judge. To trust God as the writer of wrongs that He is. And for us as Christians, as followers of Christ, to focus on faithfully staying in the lane that God's called us to run in when it comes to our relationships with people. Even people who have hurt us. Even people who have crossed us. And here's the lane of faith that we now run in. We love even our enemies. We forgive even people who have hurt us. We extend grace to people who don't deserve it. The Apostle Paul said in Romans twelve seventeen, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you. Basically, this is what you can control. Live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. He's thirsty, give him something to drink. And we read that and go, how in the world do you do that? How in the world do you respond like that? How do we not seek vengeance and even fantasize about vengeance and instead actually feel love, experience love, and show love and grace and mercy to the people who hurt us and cross us and even hate us by remembering again and again and again the gospel. By remembering again and again and again that in my sin I was like Nabal. I deserved the wrath of God. I rebelled against my Creator. I was dead in my sin. I was an enemy of God. I did hurtful things towards my Creator in my sinful defiance. But instead of God giving me mine, instead of God giving me what I deserved, He sent His Son. To take my place on the cross in the violent wrath and the judgment of God poured out not on me, the guilty, but on the guiltless one, Jesus Christ. And now, as a follower of Christ, when it comes to my relationships with people, as a recipient of God's grace, my role now is to be a forgiven person who forgives. It's to be a grace-impacted person who extends grace. Because I remember who I was. I remember what God's done for me. I remember that God rescued an undeserving, black-hearted sinner like me. And He chooses. Here's the unbelievable part of it. He chooses to continue to lavish my life with grace and mercy and love and forgiveness forever and ever and ever. That cannot be a reality in my life and not change the way that I see and treat people. Even my enemies... The gospel transforms the way you see people. It will develop a deep love in your heart for even your enemies because you'll remember, wait, I was an enemy of God. And you'll begin to love them in the form of you longing for them to experience experience their sin being judged in the same place that yours was judged. 
And that's in Christ on the cross where sins can be forgiven, where anyone can experience forgiveness, even your greatest enemy, and they can actually experience real change in their life. Think about that. That right there, seeing things through the lens of the gospel, that will expose the folly of vengeance. Because why do we hold on to vengeful thoughts of revenge in our hearts? Because we think that getting evil will change the situation. Getting even will change the person. That vengeance will fix people. It can't fix people because we know it didn't fix us. What changed us? Grace. What changed us? Love. What changed us? God's mercy. We have to keep remembering that. Repaying evil with evil. Tit for tat. It doesn't help. It just makes relationships more messy. If you want to be a vehicle of God's power and truly help produce true righteousness in the hearts of people around you, people you love, even people you consider as enemies, leave vengeance in the hands of God and run in the lane that God's called you to run in. And that's to extend mercy as someone who's received it. Extend forgiveness as someone who's received it. Extend grace as someone who has received it. And remember that ultimately, Jesus needs to change them. Right? Even your greatest enemies, do you agree that it's Jesus who needs to change them? I want you to think about what you're agreeing to. Jesus needs to change them, which means that ultimately, what do they need to see in you and experience in the relationship with you? Jesus. Who came and died in our place and gave us what we didn't deserve and looked at His enemies who were there at the foot of that cross, guilty for nailing Him to that cross. And by the way, we're in that crowd. And what does He say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's what people need to experience and see in us. That's what fixes people. It's the gospel. Changes the way. That we relate to people. Listen, I want you to hear me wrong this morning. We love justice. We love righteousness as children of God. We hate injustice. We should long to want to see the wrongs in this world and even the wrongs done to us made right. But we leave all that in the hands of God. We leave other, we, some things we leave in the hands of the justice system, that, a system that God's created to handle things. That's not what we handle. That's not the way, that's not the way we roll as Christ followers. We stay in the lane of reflecting the amazing love and the grace and the mercy of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who we have a beautiful picture of in this passage, don't we? By the way, we don't see it in David here. We don't see it in David here. No, with David's faults right here, we see our need for a greater king. I wish this could end this story with David laying down his, you know, self-proclaimed right to take vengeance on Nabal and we could kind of maybe look past that as a little you know little hiccup in his judgment but in verse 40 David sends to make Abigail his wife at first that sounds great man she sounds like she'll be a great wife to David until you realize that David takes another wife in verse 43 and what we see is David following through the tradition of his day prohibited by God in Deuteronomy chapter 17 prohibiting future kings to use their power to take multiple wives they're to be different So the first time it's crystal clear, David's not the king that this world is looking for, is he? No, he's 
He's pointing us to the king we need. But even in this passage, but in this passage right here, he's not the one that's the clearest picture of Christ. It's actually Abigail. You see shadows of the Savior in Abigail? Humbling herself as a servant, becoming a mediator, standing in the gap, making things right. She's standing between the wrath of David and her household. She offers herself as a substitute, takes the blame. Is it her fault? No, it's Nabal's fault. And yet there she is taking the blame. And through her interceding, the whole household is saved. What does that point to? It points to Jesus. Who comes and through his life, lived righteously in our place that we can't live. And through a sacrificial death, he raises from the dead. And through his interceding and mediating, many are saved. Have you been saved by the grace of God? Through trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? That's what the story of Abigail is pointing you to. That's the most important decision that you need to make this morning. But if you're a believer, let me ask you a couple application questions. Where are you trying to accomplish God's purposes by the power of your flesh? Where have you taken matters into your own hands? What situation is it in your life that you need to lay down and say, God, I'm not going to try to fix this anymore. I'm not going to harbor any more bitterness in my heart towards this person anymore. I'm not going to try to take vengeance and fix this person. I'm going to wait on you. I'm going to trust you to deal with this. And I'm going to trust as I run in my lane faithfully that you called me to run to extend grace. Speak truth, yes, but to extend grace and mercy and love and reflect Jesus Christ. That you're going to work according to your perfect will for your glory. So that's the application questions for the believer. But again, I want to ask. Have you submitted to Christ? And if you haven't done that, I want to give you an opportunity to receive Jesus this morning. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Christ, I want to extend an invitation to you to repent of your sin, to turn to Jesus, to throw yourself on the mercy of God, and to trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. If that's the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in your heart, and even what I just said expresses what's, what's happening inside of your heart right now, you feel the weight of your sin, and you see the need that you have to be saved, I would love to pray with you down front. I would love to talk with you after the service. Please don't leave today without seeing one of us. But believer, I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit is showing you how you need to respond. This is one of those passages that hits us in our lives in a lot of different areas in some really real ways. Because we got a bunch of relationships and because we often get out in front and look a lot like David and his little army marching across the wilderness doing things our way. And it's a moment for us to stop. You know, what would be foolish to do this morning is to hear God's word, to understand God's word. But to not believe it and receive it and apply it in our lives. Don't do that. Here's the wiser path. God wants to work on you this morning. And one of the most difficult areas for some of you is an area of unforgiveness, of bitterness. And you need to take that step of faith. It doesn't mean that that relationship necessarily be reconciled. And it doesn't mean you just become a doormat. But it does mean that you can release that in your heart to God. And you can offer forgiveness in your heart and let it go. It has that 
powerful quote says, you'll realize a prisoner has been set free, that prisoner was you.